America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka with Professor Akhil Amar, and we're happy to uh, record and present to you our 20th episode. 20 weeks in a row, 20 episodes. Um, in this uh, discussion today, you may hear reference to my own candidacy for the Yale Corporation. That's uh, Yale University's version of a board of trustees. Um, just to explain, the Yale Charter has long had a provision for candidates to run for this board via petition. And I had declared my candidacy for this in accordance with an intricate set of rules that Yale maintained. Now, yesterday, um, the corporation abruptly abolished this path to membership. So, barring any change, I'm apparently no longer a candidate. Now, we may discuss this in a future episode, but for now, we just wanted to clarify any reference to this that you might hear in the forthcoming discussion. America's Constitution is sponsored once again by Everscholar, which by now you know is the most exciting way to learn from the world's best faculty. It's not online, not via Zoom, not on tape. Uh, it's in person with other eager learners like yourself. Check out everscholar.org. And we've had a series of outstanding guests recently who have formed a series on civil liberties. And it's been quite interesting to host guests who have in common their, their deep commitment to freedom, truth, and scholarship, but have really taken quite different routes to get there. Uh, Nadine Strassen was the head of the ACLU for many years and has led that way as well as a prolific a public speaker. Floyd Abrams has been perhaps the most prolific Supreme Court litigator on the First Amendment and other civil liberties matters. And today, Professor Alan Dershowitz joins us, and his civil libertarian impact has come through the academy and through the uh, practice of criminal defense at both trial and appellate levels. So to introduce Professor Dershowitz, uh, Alan Dershowitz is one of the best known and most respected criminal defense attorneys and constitutional law experts in America, and he has been for decades. He's a noted public intellectual author, speaker, commentator, and scholar. Uh, Professor Dershowitz attended Brooklyn College and Yale Law School, where he edited the Yale Law Journal. He clerked for Judge David Basil on the, on the DC Circuit, and then Justice Arthur Goldberg on the US Supreme Court. He joined the Harvard Law School faculty in 1964 and became a full professor in 1967 at age 28, and at that time, that was the youngest full professor in the history of the law school. Uh, in 1993, he became the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law, and he continued to teach at Harvard until 2013, just before his 50th anniversary on the faculty. He uh, maintained a robust private practice during his tenure on the faculty, and he's represented many famous and sometimes notorious clients, including O.J. Simpson, Patricia Hearst, Klaus von Bülow, and Mike Tyson, among many. He also uh, most recently was the subject of controversy because of his public defense of President Trump during his first impeachment and his statements at various times that surrounded Trump controversies. He has nevertheless maintained that he is a consistently liberal Democrat, but also a consistent civil libertarian. He's the recipient of numerous awards, including the William O. Douglas First Amendment Award from the Anti-Defamation League and the Menachem Begin Award of Honor. He's also been awarded numerous honorary degrees. He's written 
dozens of books, including The Best Defense, Chutzpah, Reversal of Fortune, The Case for Israel, and many others. Uh, in a 2018 profile in The New Yorker, he was described as consistently, quote, loud, provocative, brilliant, and principled, and universally acknowledged for the moral seriousness of his positions. Uh, nevertheless, or perhaps because of these traits, he's long been surrounded by controversy and seems comfortable with it. His latest book is The Case Against the New Censorship. So it's a pleasure to welcome to America's Constitution the uh, author of the new book, The Case Against the New Censorship, Protecting Free Speech from Big Tech, Progressives, and Universities, Professor Alan Dershowitz. Welcome, Professor Dershowitz. Well, thank you. I think podcasts like yours are taking on greater importance as we see more censorship in the private media. We have to create alternative platforms, and I think your podcast and others like it are an important way of fighting back against the new censorship, which is very different from the old censorship. You know, the old censorship was easy to beat. I litigated probably 25 free speech cases in the last half of the 20th century and won almost all of them because we had the First Amendment on our side. But today, the First Amendment is on the side of big tech and on the side of universities, private universities, and on the side of progressives, and they have a constitutional right to censor. So it's actually far more dangerous than the old McCarthyite type of governmental censorship. So, Alan, I promise we're going to get into the, the new book and all your ideas, but before we do that, I, I, I and Andy um, has given you a, a wonderful and, and proper and fulsome introduction, but I, I want to introduce you just a bit more um, to uh, our audience, since you mentioned podcasts, some of them are young people, and they may not know all about Alan Dershowitz and his extraordinary um, life. You and I actually... Um, have been friends for a long time, and yep. and there are certain similarities actually that that you and I have. We both started at prominent uh, law schools at a young age. I I hope to stay as long at mine as 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 you did at yours, and it was a great honor uh, for me to um, uh, to be at um, your um, send off. Um, uh, for those who don't know, Alan Dershowitz started teaching at the Harvard Law School in his mid twenties and was on the faculty for 50 years, and uh, at the uh, Feshrift, um, um, uh, when he, he left, I, I actually drove up the uh, former uh, Chief Justice of, of Israel, Aharon Barak, and his wife, Elika, to, to the event, um, and, uh, and by, um, we didn't have Zoom then, but, but we had um, um, uh, uh, video uh, tributes from uh, Larry David, of, of Seinfeld fame and <laughs> right. Lena Kagan and, and, and Stephen Breyer, our mutual friend, um, mutual yeah. friends, and, and, and Bibi Netanyahu. And we're going to talk about, I think, you know, a lot of those um, uh, 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 folks uh, uh, today. Um, but, but one thing I just, you know, wanted to I I invite you um, to talk about is um, your, you know, career. You, I think you've written three at least autobiographies uh, possibly <laughs> um, uh, so so but just if you if you had to you know uh, condense them just a bit how would how would you describe the arc of your life in the law well i think i have been fortunate to have been involved in 
some of the most important litigation of the end of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st century. And I think that, um, um, you know, I, I, I am non-political. I voted against Donald Trump. I voted for Joe Biden. I voted for um, uh, Hillary Clinton. I voted for Barack Obama. But I defended uh, President Trump against what I believed was an unconstitutional um, impeachment. And so a lot of people thought I was a Trump supporter. Of course, I'm not. Uh, I'm a liberal Democrat. But, uh, you know, I don't know whether John Adams, how he felt when he defended the uh, Boston Massacre uh, British soldiers. He did say that of all the accomplishments, and he had enormous accomplishments, helped to draft the Declaration of Independence and so many other things. But that defending the Boston Massacre um, people was the highlight of his legal career. Now, you mentioned Trump, and that's actually going to be one of our themes also before the end of our conversation. Andy and I sure. mapped out some of the topics. Um, um, but um, uh, Trump is hardly uh, the only uh, famous client of yours, so maybe you can remind <laughs> us of some of the others. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I've, I do half of my cases pro bono, and half of my cases involve people that nobody's ever heard of. But obviously, the uh, media covers the famous ones, the Klaus von Bülow, the O.J. Simpson, the Patricia Hearst. All of those cases are the ones that are covered. But my uh, legacy has been primarily uh, capital punishment cases, First Amendment cases, um, and, uh, uh, and um, free speech cases of every kind, uh, whether it be under the First Amendment or just in the marketplace of ideas. So, you know, I think of um, my legacy as, <clears throat> as a principle that I've always tried to um, advocate based on principles. I, I have what I call the shoe on the other foot test. Um, if the facts were completely reversed and... Uh, um, the the other party was you know in in power and etc. Um, would you be doing this? And my answer is always yes. I I do, and therefore I pass the shoe on the other test foot test. But I think a lot of my colleagues don't. They just um, <clears throat> um, advocate for partisan views, and they manage to find in the Constitution um, justifications for what are their essentially political and partisan views. And I just don't like that, and I've never done it, and I'm never going to do it. I'm going to keep uh, arguing based on principles, and, um, and uh, I hope people will recognize that uh, that's what my um, approach to law has always been. You know, I've, I've followed your career for many years. I went in my younger days, I read, I believe, five of your books, starting with The, the Best Defense and Chutzpah and The Case for Israel and others. Um, I wondered over the years, though, you know, you have these principled stands and you've been very consistent in them. Um, but I wondered whether there was a personal toll associated with that. Yeah, yeah, you know? there has been. Yeah, there has been. Um, I'm thinking of writing a book at some point in the future. Because you haven't cost, written enough. <laughs> yeah, the, the, or of you. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the price of principle. Um, what it does to you if you stick with principles. And uh, the costs are very high. Uh, you talked about Larry David. And he was a good friend. He's no longer a good friend because 
he just ended his friendship with me when I defended President uh, Trump in the impeachment. Um, people who um, who um, uh, I helped get their kids recommendations to college. I recommend. I, 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 I went and I freed them from prison on drunken driving charges at three in the morning. And these people just um, decided they didn't want to have anything to do with me after I defended uh, President Trump. So, yes, it took a heavy toll. Um, my family, some family members were very upset at me. And um, my wife and my sons um, and my daughter st stuck by me, but there are certainly some who um, were really upset that I would have uh, helped somebody they regard as the personification of evil. You know, I think that, uh, I, I know that you're known to be a, a, a family man, that your family is very important to you. Right. Um, is this the kind of thing that, I mean, anyone that knows you knows that, I suppose, that you're going, that this is what you're going to do, that you're a man of principle, this is what, you know, how you've, your career and your life has been structured. Um, but still, do you have a discussion with your family before you take on a, a difficult case like this, or, uh, or your your defense of President Trump, not just, you know, uh, legally, but in the in the court of you know public opinion? Is this something you consult with your family on, or is it just this is this is who you are? They know this is who you are, and um, no, I consult. I consult. I don't give them a veto, but I consult and I take very seriously their concerns. And um, I did make a decision not to defend President Trump on his second impeachment because I was so appalled by the speech of this January 6th that I didn't want to be part of uh, a defense that uh, argued that the election was unfair and that, um, you know, there, there were stolen elections. I didn't want to do that. So, and, and, my family was very anxious for me not to do that. And I think I probably um, did take into account what they said. I, I might have represented him if my family hadn't been opposed to it, but they were very strongly opposed to it. And they said, look, you did it once. Uh, we supported you. And now we want you not to do it the second time. Mm -hmm. And are you glad for that decision in retrospect? Yeah, I think so. Um, look, I... I think that um, President Trump's speech, ill-advised as it was, and it was a terrible speech, um, is protected by the, by the First Amendment. And I was shocked that my friend and your friend, Floyd Abrams, would sign a letter that at least implied, it wasn't clearly set out, but at least implied that maybe Trump's speech was not protected by the Brandenburg Principle. I think it, it was and is. So, um, you know, these, the, the Trump uh, phenomenon has created all kinds of divisions among people. And people feel very, very strongly about Trump. Not, unlike what I did with O.J. Simpson, where some people were upset with me, or Klaus von Bülow, but with Donald Trump, I mean, people said to me, I am destroying the country. I am keeping him in, in office when it would be so much better for the country if he left office. You know, I, I cite in my book, The Best Defense, uh, a, a barrister in England who said, when you defend somebody, your only function is to provide the best possible defense, even if it 
requires you to bring the country that you love into disrepute. And so I do. And um, people get very mad at me. I understand that. And um, um, but um, but um, I think it was important to to do the first uh, impeachment. Why do you think it is that uh, that Trump caused such a uh, strong reaction? Um, I mean, my own reaction was somewhat visceral as well. Um, yeah. And um, so, you know, what is it about him that's different, or his presidency, well, he, or his style, or whatever? Yeah. I think he pressed the limits of free speech very, very hard. And I think he said some things uh, over the years that um, I couldn't support or defend. Um, and, um, um, and people just feel so strongly. Um, and, and, and that resulted in all kinds of tensions between me and and old friends and some relatives, and uh, um, you know, it's still not it's still not resolved. I still have some family members who are pretty upset with me. You know, you you talk about the weakening of free speech protections and and uh, how you know you maintain strongly that that Trump had the right to say what he said, probably yeah. either everything or virtually everything that he said, um, and that may well be the case. Um, but I think that there was a reaction to the pattern of falsity um, in what he had to say, that if you're a believer uh, in the First Amendment and you believe that the marketplace of ideas will most of the time win, uh, win out, um, I think that there's a belief that's uh, contained within that belief that that is because when the, the truth is revealed, the other side will eventually have to throw up their hands and surrender to the truth. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps well, people were frustrated that that didn't seem like that would ever happen mm -hmm. in this case. Yeah, and I don't agree with that. I wrote a book about Thomas Jefferson in which I uh, argue with him about the marketplace of ideas. The marketplace of ideas sometimes results in bad speech uh, prevailing over good speech, but elections sometimes result in bad results over good results. Nobody would say you shouldn't have elections just because they have bad results. Um, and the same thing is true of free speech. I think it was Winston Churchill who said, you know, democracy, the worst possible system of governance except for all the others that have been tried over time. So when people attack free speech, as many are now doing, my first question is always, what's the alternative? I'll give you an example from current events. So you get um, President Trump would like to tweet on behalf of Israel because he's a strong supporter of Israel. He would like to tweet, but Twitter won't let him because they say his tweets are not true. They're dishonest. Um, and um, But the same Twitter has up things about Hitler didn't kill enough Jews, uh, I want to be the new Hitler, uh, Israel isn't a real country. And when you allow those things to stay up, after you've taken Trump down, the impression that's conveyed is that the social media has said that it must be true, that the stuff that gets kept up must be true because it hasn't been taken down. And we know that that isn't the case. And we know that uh, much of what is on the social media is out and out falsehoods. Now, obviously, it's a big difference when the president of the United States is tweeting and when some 
um, person and individual uh, tweets. But, you know, it's hard to, to um, come to a principled um, argument uh, against um, the marketplace of ideas. And you do make these uh, arguments in the new book. I think it's it's quite interesting that you explore yeah. in greater detail, and that that I think brings us to to the discussion about the um, about the book and and about the issues regarding social media. Yeah. Um, so it's it's quite difficult when the uh, isn't it the the problem because as you say the First Amendment doesn't really avail us of a solution to the difficulties of social media. Yeah. What do no. you see as the problems? of social media, not, not the problems uh, that you just referred to, the problems of, that, that are incurred when social media tries to solve its alleged problems. But what do you see with the problems in, in the first instance, if any? Well, I think there are problems on both sides. Um, Justice Thomas wrote a very interesting decision. In the end, I don't agree with it, because I think giving the government the power over the private media is uh, worse than the problem. And so I would not like to see that happen. But he wrote an opinion in which he, you know, went through a number of the possibilities. And I think that opinion um, will actually uh, have some resonance over the next couple of years. I think we're going to see an attempt to limit uh, Section 230, um, which was supposed to operate only because the social media was supposed to be platforms, no, no censorship. But what I would like to do is amend it so that every media has to check a box. If you want to get the benefit of 230, you check the box and you can't censor, except for illegal things. Obviously, you can't put stuff on that's illegal. But, um, but uh, beside that, and then if you want to censor, fine, but you can't get the benefit of 230. So I'd like to see that amendment uh, and I think that's an appropriate compromise. I don't want to see the government abolish 230 completely, but I want to see them limit it to um, media companies that don't pick and choose uh, what they allow on their platforms. And just for our audience's benefit, um, Section 230, um, I believe, uh, says essentially that you're not going to be sued for defamation and so forth um, for something that someone posts just because you are running the platform that has the That's most right. appearance. And that makes sense. And that makes sense if you're just running the platform. You don't want to hold uh, platforms responsible if they have no um, discretion, if they just let everything on. Um, but if they pick and choose, then they're like the New York Times and CNN, and those media outlets don't have the benefit of um, Section 230. Now you alluded to along these lines an interesting point where you said that if if some if there is some um, if you want to call it censorship or wh whatever um, some some posts are are blocked some people are blocked um, then those things that are not blocked are have a certain imprimatur given to them right. yeah. um, and this actually brings us to to I think another topic which is related to speech on campus yeah so um, Akil and I uh, and you are all Yale alumni, um, you being a graduate of the Yale Law School. Um, and uh, we're taping this in the, uh, in the wake of the recent uh, uh, Israel-Hamas um, uh, difficulties. Um, actually, uh, as we speak, apparently a ceasefire was just yeah. agreed yeah. to in the last few minutes. Um, 
But at any rate, um, a department or a program at Yale called uh, Ethnicity, Race, and Migration um, posted a statement on their website the other day, which was unsigned, but, but spoke for ostensibly the scholars of the program. That's the language that they used. And it was clearly a very strong um, anti-Israel statement. Um, but the, the, we can get into the content of the statement, but I'm more interested in the, in the form of the statement for now, which is yeah. that this, is, you know, this purports to be a statement on behalf of academics, but is it all of the academics? Is it all the members of the department? Is it some? And again, people that, that didn't sign, the, well, no one signed the statement, but if you were a faculty member and you didn't agree with this statement, you would be put in a position where either it would be attributed to you or you would have to deny it. You might not want to yeah, do yeah. either of those things. So yeah. um, do you believe that this is something that is that falls in the realm of academic freedom or is... No, I, I don't. I don't. I think academic freedom protects the right to express views uh, outside of the classroom um, and... Um, express views that don't affect uh, the students. But what I worry about with things like this, let's assume you have a student who's in the department who doesn't agree with this, and that student is a strong supporter of Israel. Um, that student is not going to feel safe um, um, expressing views that are extremely um, controversial and unpopular. And um, I, I think that um, we, we shouldn't um, allow departments to make policy decisions. Um, I don't think that's part of academic uh, freedom. An individual can write any op-ed piece he wants, but when you have a department um, expressing a departmental view, that goes well beyond academic freedom to coercion. And, um, and it's um, something that I think will um, make it hard for students to speak up and express dissenting uh, views. Um, and uh, it's, it's very, very uh, dangerous. Um, for example, I, I graduated Brooklyn College. and um, My father is also a graduate of Brooklyn College. Uh, good. And um, the, um, they invited probably 10 BDS, anti-Israel people to speak over the past couple of years. And when I asked if I could be invited to speak, they said, no, uh, no, we're not going to invite you. It's a public university, but they claim they have the right to decide. Uh, who they will uh, allow to speak on, on campus, um, and um, you know it's uh, it's uh, at Berkeley. I actually threatened a lawsuit because they wouldn't allow me to speak on behalf of Israel. Uh, they said that uh, you have to be invited by a department, but no department at Berkeley would invite me, and so I threatened a lawsuit. And as soon as I threatened the lawsuit, uh, Dean Shabalevsky, who's a great man, the dean of the Berkeley Law School, invited me and avoided a lawsuit. And, um, you know, people came to my speech. They heard what I had to say. They disagreed. Some of them booed. That's fine. Booing is protected speech as long as it's not designed to shut you down. So um, these are very delicate balances. 
that have to be uh, exquisitely nuanced. Let me jump in here and concur in the judgment in a way, um, which is a legal term for some of our uh, audience members, uh, saying, I agree um, uh, with the result, um, and maybe here's a slightly different way to get to it. Um, uh, so go back to what you were talking about, Facebook. I think universities as such are in general platforms, and they should not be taking positions on controversial issues. They should be a platform for individual faculty members to take positions on issues. Um, And I I think uh, and uh, the great Harry Calvin um, at the University of Chicago actually had a great report about this, um, I think, in the late 60s. Um, And I I would associate myself with that. He was uh, my grand mentor, if you will, my one of my great mentors. You and I have several mentors in common, Guido Calabresi, most obviously. But but um, Owen Fiss is another one of my mentors and his mentor. Well, and he was, and he's a great free speech scholar. His mentor was Harry Calvin, who's a great free speech yep. scholar, right. um, a great book um, on uh, a free speech, a worthy tradition. He, he coined various phrases like Heckler's veto, and you know, an extraordinary um, uh, First Amendment scholar in his own um, right. And he said basically, universities as such can take positions on some things like the need for universities, the, the importance of, of uh, uh, the tax-exempt status of universities. Um, but apart from things that really go to the university itself and it, its mission, universities as such shouldn't be taking positions on so war let me and, press and you. peace. Um, but let individual pr- faculty members can. Right. Let me press you on that. Okay. What about taking positions on race-based affirmative action? which is clearly part of what a university is all about. Right, right. And, so so that's, uh, that's more closely connected to the core mission right. of the university itself than a piece in the Middle East. Um, yeah, or, no, of course, um, yeah. Uh, um, uh, so so um, I was horrified, frankly, by this um, statement um, uh, uh, by the... Uh, ethnicity, uh, race, and migration, and migration. department. Um, I was horrified uh, uh, by, by for, I think, at least three reasons. First, because I didn't think the department as such should be taking a position on this, even though individual faculty members can. Second, if individual faculty members can, they should do it actually, ideally, in um, a scholarly way. Um, and I didn't find um, this statement particularly scholarly. It was actually kind of em- embarrassingly no, of yeah. one side. So, and, and the first two words of the statement were as scholars, and I, and, you know, we, yeah, blah, yeah, blah, and then, yeah. boy, if, if that's, if that's your, you know, your scholarship, man, I'm not even an expert in this field, and, and I know all sorts of things that, that you're leaving out and one-sided, uh, uh, because they were challenging not just Israel's most recent policies, but if you read it, almost their right to exist, saying, oh, they're colonial settlers, and for the last 70 years, and illegal, and occupied land, I'm thinking, wow, you know, how many law schools, degrees do any of you have? And and when you're saying illegal, 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 and um, and I've read Alan Dershowitz's book on the case for Israel and Martin Gilbert's History of Israel. And, oh, there's some complicated stuff here. And there's no mention of the Grand Mufti or um, um, of the 1930s and 40s and much less um, um, the, the 50s. And uh, so, so wow, this wasn't very scholarly. And, and I'm not sure each and every one of you who are signing this has, has done the independent scholarship to, to show your work. 
Um, um, so, you know, I don't think the department should be taking the position. I thought it was really um, uh, simplistic. And, and bottom line was probably more wrong than right. That's my third objection, you know, basically. And in, in, in what they were saying, um, it was actually rather unimpressive. Um, so, um, I f uh, uh, um, but... Um, uh, the, um, and, and just so for, for our audience, here's, here are the first couple of sentences. Um, as scholars in the program in ethnicity, race, and migration, we recognize the Palestinian struggle as an indigenous liberation movement confronting a settler colonial state illegally expropriating their land for over 70 years. That's the first sentence. It's not about rockets, you know, in the last week or anything like that. And it, it goes on from that. And I'm thinking, wow, there's a lot in that sentence that seems to me not very scholarly in its description of the problem. So what would you do if you were the president of Yale University? Would you just uh, remain quiet? Would you make a statement saying this is not an appropriate use of uh, faculty uh, statements. What would you do if you were the president? And think? it's a little awkward because President Salovey happens to be Jewish, but I would say I'm calling for a commission to try to think through what university proper university policies should be about departmental and university-wide statements, um, um, just like there was a commission on the naming of... Um, uh, various buildings on campus, like Calhoun College. Um, uh, this is a commission, um, I would say, if I were President Salovey, akin to the commission that the University of Chicago had um, uh, gen two generations ago, headed by Harry Calvin. And I'm appointing Akhil Amar as head of that commission, who happens not to be Jewish, by the way, so that makes it a little less, you know, um, awkward for Peter Salovey, but who happens to be a, a constitutional scholar of some distinction. And that uh, commission, by the way, Akhil, I think the word that you left out, which I think is an important one, it was a it was a commission on principles yes. of renaming. It wasn't the principle. It wasn't a commission on whether or not Calhoun. to rename Calhoun College right. per se. It's you know how do we think about the issue of renaming and how do we go about it? And the same thing here, I think, would be might be appropriate. Is how do we? Um, what are our policies regarding um, these sorts of statements? And, I, and frankly, I think it's it's more than just departments because we've seen this. You know, metastasis. Uh, I'm I'm going beyond proliferation here on purpose um, of statements. Every time there's an issue, there's something in the in news. The news. Yes. You know, it, the president of the university everywhere seems to, to, which is different than just affirmative action in education when it's about BLM or or the, um, this protest or um, um, that that um, issue in the headlines, which is different than how we run our university. Well, we have to have policies on that. And then we're getting to the Alan Dershowitz um, point earlier, which is that if you don't weigh in in this climate, and there are no principles that, that tell you when you weigh in and when you don't, then that is a form of weighing in. And, and uh, that's not right. In other words, you know, there should be a, a, a time when it's appropriate right. for a president to weigh in, and then he right. does. Right. No, know, we should be able to check a box, as it were, as a university saying, we do not, just like Alan is saying, well, certain platforms can say we don't censor. We do not take positions, nor do, do any department take positions, except on issues that are directly 
um, related to our um, academic um, mission and, and function and purpose. And, and Alan, um, uh, Andy and I, because uh, um, as our audience should know, Andy is, uh, is going to be running for the, the, as an as a outside candidate um, for the uh, Yale Corporation as a trustee candidate, and he has Fair my point. vote. Um, yeah, and I hope he has yours and and, and your family's uh, votes too, Alan. But 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 we've been talking about a sl- subtle drift um, um, in the core conception of the mission of the university. Harvard's mission, uh, you know, I've always thought was about very worry toss truth, um, finding truth, disseminating truth. Um, and Yale, just to one-up Harvard, is lex at veritas, <laughs> light and truth, but um, a spreading of enlightenment, again, um, basically about knowledge and truth and finding it and, and teaching it and, and disseminating it. That's what I thought the university does. There, it's not the only thing in the world that's important, but it's what universities do. And I think there's a drift. Um, many pe- My colleagues um, seem to think, no, the core mission of the university is social justice. And I believe in social justice, but I actually think that's a slightly different mission than uh, looks at Oeritas. What's your view, Alan? Push back a little and be the devil's advocate. The folks who push this kind of statement will clearly say this is a central part of our mission. We are a department that deals with indigenous people. We are a department that deals with, you know, all the things that are going on in Palestine and Israel and it's part of what we're doing in our department. Now, this raises a broader question. Should there be departments like this, which are basically advocacy departments? You know, you, you can't have a department like this, which uh, encourages self-criticism. When you have departments like this, they become advocacy. Mm-hmm. They become of it. Nobody is critical. Nobody is raising doubts. And, you know, this really raises for me the core fundamental issue. I think one of the reasons we are seeing the um, new censorship is because the new censors think they know the truth with a big T. They know that every white police officer who kills a black person is guilty. They know that every woman who accuses a man is guilty. They know that Every election is uh, fair and machines uh, work. And they know that, um, that vaccines are um, uh, you know, effective. They may be right about all of those things. But when you think you have the truth on your side, you don't need due process. If you know that Chauvin is guilty, uh, why do you need a fair trial? If you know that um, other issues uh, are truthful, why do you need dissent? And so I'm very worried that for the first time in my adult life, we're seeing academics, professors, who are writing articles against freedom of speech, talking about freedom of speech as patriarchal, as, um, you know, hierarchical, as privileged. Uh, You're seeing an, an academic attack on freedom of speech for the first time in my life. Um, and, um, it, it will spread because these students are going to be the future leaders of our country and they will be the future editors of the New York times, uh, uh, of uh, Simon and Schuster. And we're seeing that Simon and Schuster has 300 people saying, don't publish vice president Pence's book. And they, uh, Norton company withdrew Philip Roth's biography. 
Um, you know, we're seeing the, the most um, paradigmatic um, defenders traditionally of free speech now arguing that free speech um, should be subordinated to other values like equality and um, hate speech prevention and a range of other issues. Well, let me jump in here, Alan, and just bring the readers, uh, excuse me, our listeners in on, on just part of the background of our relationship. You and I first got to know each other in a debate. Um, I wrote some stuff about the exclusionary rule. It was provocative, and you criticized it in Slate, and I responded, and I loved you for um, your willingness to debate me. Um, It wasn't personal. We disagreed. Um, I think you were very generous in identifying what my real arguments were, and I think you did a better job of that than all sorts of other people who didn't want to engage. And and that's how our friendship began, um, by um, exemplifying, really epitomizing for other folks what we're supposed to be doing, which is scholars pushing each other uh, hard, um, um, back and forth um, on, in, a, in a contest of ideas. And I know you believe in this a lot, and you even said earlier, well, let me play devil's advocate, and, and it's a, it's a, a phrase that, uh, that you, that's very prominently associated with you and, and your work, and you've tried to embody it by debating all sorts of people in all sorts of contexts. You were talking about your effort to try to do that at Berkeley, inject yourself um, um, into the conversation, um, into a debate. Um, recently, you and I had a conversation at Yale Law School about impeachment standards. Um, um, now, um, our friend, our mutual friend, Nadine Strawson, was on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, um, and more recently we had Floyd Abrams, whose name you mentioned, and, and we asked her a question, because she tries to do the same thing. She's really good at engaging people on the other side rather than just trying to ignore them. She's trying to create a culture of free speech in which people argue back and forth respectfully, and, and there's a clash. We asked her a question, and, and now Andy and I want to ask you the same question. Um, do you have any line at all about people whom you will not debate? You do, whom, who's, you know, when you think, no, I'm, I'm not going to dignify that person by appearing on the same platform um, with them. Um, how have you thought about that issue over the years? Well, I initially said I wouldn't debate Holocaust deniers because there's no plausible truth to Holocaust denial. Um, men, members of my family were murdered during the Holocaust. Uh, we know the Holocaust occurred. There may be arguments about whether there were 6.2 million or 6.1 million, but the Holocaust occurred. And so for years I said I would not debate Holocaust deniers. I, I think I'm now changing my mind on that. Um, I, I don't see any reason not to uh, debate uh, even things that are, are horrible. Um, you know, I think it should be part of a four-part debate. Uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, John F. Kennedy is alive and, and living comfortably on Hyannis. Uh, Presley uh, is uh, singing songs. Uh, the earth is flat. You know, uh, 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 crazy things. But I'm, I think I'm prepared to debate um, anybody. I, I wasn't. I, I said I wouldn't dignify Holocaust denial, but I think now with what's going on with free speech, I think I'm changing my mind and 
I would now debate Holocaust denial. I mean, I, I have to think that the that what you expressed earlier, where you know you say, well, we know the truth, we know vaccines work, and so forth. Um, I'm a physician; I believe vaccines work. Um, I encourage everyone to get vaccinated. Um, but um, you know, but you say, well, you said earlier that well, you know, you you can claim to know it, but it's better to to put it out there for for discussion. And this would seem to be in the same category. I mean, this is something that I know, but yet if I'm not willing to debate it with someone that says otherwise, then that doesn't really help matters. So uh, so I think this is akin to the, or at least consistent with that earlier expressed philosophy. Holocaust denial is such an abominable um, um, position. No way any rational person could believe that the Holocaust didn't occur. So they're all liars know the Holocaust occurred. They just are saying it didn't occur to make anti-Semitic uh, points. But um, I, I think I would now debate um, that um, because I think if somebody denies the Holocaust, it gives us an occasion to um, prove um, the Holocaust, to educate people who don't know very much. And so if you have a debate on the Holocaust, I think it helps uh, promote um, uh, advocacy and truth, and um, and uh, you know um, uh, veritas. Fair, fair enough. I think I think so. I mean, and of course, you know, you, your reaction to it is visceral um, because your Jewishness is very much a part of of who you are and has always been. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Oh, very much so. But, you know, uh, a lot of things are visceral. I represented, I defended the rights of Nazis to march through Skokie because there was a free speech issue uh, there. I defended the rights of a Harvard professor to uh, write a book in which he claimed that there might be space aliens and he wouldn't exclude the possibility of space aliens. And they uh, wanted to um, um, dismiss him from Harvard, and I won the case. Um, but, uh, you know, the, 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 there are so many issues that today are regarded as acceptable, um, and um, many of them are false. And part of it, of course, goes to the, um, the social media because the social media keeps those materials up. And it says you can't have Trump, but you can have Holocaust denial. So that's, you know, that's a very dangerous combination. Um, It's uh, free speech for me, but not for the, um, I think we're better off erring on the side of having debates about everything than limiting it because there's no principled limitation that I think I could come up with um, um, for um, uh, Holocaust denial. I don't know what the the um, principal argument would be. What if somebody just said, "Well, it was a Holocaust, but it was five million Jews, and the Jews are 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 are, are um, exaggerating it for their own good, and they're making it, um, um, you know, uh, a political issue." Um, you know, I, I would certainly debate that. So, um, yeah. But um, but I, w- I was starting to allude to the how you've been identified with with your Jewishness um, 
for, for much of your career. And in fact, you were really one of the earlier uh, professors at Harvard that was kind of, a, you know, out, outed himself as a Jew, if you will. Um, what, what was that experience like? It was very interesting. Um, you know, I met um, Professor Wilson at the end of his career. He was a great Jewish scholar. And he had famously said in 1920, or infamously said in 1920, being born Jewish is like being born with a hunchback or some other um, 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 disqualification. And it's something you can't fight against. And just accept it. Just accept it. Accept that you won't get the benefits of equality. Accept that you won't get the advantages of social um, uh, support. He, he did. I mean, he was a great Harvard professor, but he didn't, um, he wasn't invited to um, various things that um, um, uh, because he was Jewish. And uh, that's now changed. You know, when I went to Harvard, um, there had never been a Jewish dean. There had never been a Jewish president. Now there's hardly any school that hasn't had a Jewish president or a Jewish dean. And the fear is that there are now going to be quotas, and the quotas are going to represent the uh, proportion of people in the population, and that would be very discriminatory. So I think there are a lot of issues that have to be uh, focused on, but as long as there's an opportunity to engage in free speech, that's um, that's. Uh, that's all we can demand. There was a great event at Harvard. I was at the meeting. Um, when Harvard started to admit uh, African-American students in large numbers, the fear was that that quota would be taken out of the Jewish quota. And uh, a number of us went to see the dean of admissions. And um, he uh, said, no, 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 you, you don't have to you understand. Uh, we're not taking it out of the Jewish quotas. We have regional distribution, and so geography. So you have cities like New York and Cleveland and Los Angeles, and the suburbs around those cities, the kind of donuts around those cities suffer uh, as the result of we have to take now more people from the inner city and less people from the suburbs. And one of the professors, I wish it was me, said, Dean, they're not donuts, they're bagels. <laughs> that had a big impact. And in years afterward, um, there, there was a much more diversifying um, uh, uh, element of um, where the affirmative action would come from. And, um, uh, you know, I think it's worked fairly well. Um, and uh, I'm writing a new book on that. I'm writing a new book called the case for colorblind equality in the age of identity politics. And I'm dealing with a number of these issues as well. Have you taken a public position on the uh, litigation against um, Harvard claiming that actually um, certain seats um, for um, bluntly African-Americans are coming now out of the hides of uh, Asian-Americans? Well, I've taken positions within the faculty on that, but I haven't taken a public position. Um, my position within the faculty has been that I think Asian Americans are discriminated against, and um, and um, you know there there is a, a ceiling of, of Asians, 
and I mean, the argument is, and it's very flattering to Asian Americans, that you're so smart and you're so good that if you just picked everybody on the merits, the school would be dominated by Asian Americans, uh, which was, of course, what did happen at MIT, um, and to a lesser degree, of course, at Harvard. So I don't know if that case will go to the Supreme Court. Um, the courts so far have affirmed Harvard's right to do what they're doing, but um, I don't know what the Supreme Court will do. So you, you said, you're talking about a, writing a book on affirmative action in the age of identity politics. So, um, you know, uh, Tony Cronman wrote a book uh, at Yale called uh, The Assault on Excellence. And, um, you know, in that book, he talked about the uh, original thoughts behind affirmative action as being a kind of time-limited approach to, uh, um, you know, making up for past discrimination. Uh, right. But that uh, in the Baki case, the reasoning didn't really go there and went to diversity as a inherent ideal. Um, so, so that kind of approach would not be so time limited. So, no, and if diversity is very narrowly defined. It's defined as racial a diversity, not ideological diversity. I mean, if you want diversity, um, you know, you're better off getting a chassid from Brooklyn uh, who's very brilliant and could contribute something, or uh, a farmer from, um, um, you know, the Midwest. Um, uh, racial diversity is very important, but it's not the only form of diversity. Well, I mean, I'm an advocate, actually, for another type of, of diversity. Um, uh, Akil and I are, are active in the program called Everscholar, which um, offers lifelong learning in a, in a very intense form to uh, scholars of all ages. Um, That's the, great. Yeah, so the, and uh, we actually had an event at Yale a few years ago, the 70th anniversary of Directed Studies, where we uh, had people from this program, or its predecessor, which was called Yale for Life, um, along with current Directed Studies students uh, and Directed Studies faculty and so forth, and, and Directed Studies alumni, and we ran 36 uh, seminars on a Saturday, and every one of them filled. Um, please. So I'm going to switch the subject just a bit. We, we've, we've circled around this several times, but um, uh, you, Alan, I think you've written well over 30 books, maybe closer to 40, maybe over 40. <laughs> you, you can tell us. Um, um, but um, uh, one of the books that I read of yours that was very powerful was the uh, book, The Case for Israel. Um, and we yeah. talked a little bit about Israel, but not a lot. And, and that may even segue into one of your most controversial ideas, which is about um, torture warrants, because Israel has to think a lot about terrorism and existential threats. But um, the, the book, The Case for Israel, um, uh, which did have a big impact on me, as did um, reading um, um, a History of Israel by uh, Martin Gilbert, um, uh, um, is dedicated to um, Ahron Barak, the right. um, uh, former Chief Justice of Israel. I'm just going to tell our um, audience one story and then invite you to talk a little bit about your um, nuanced and complex um, uh, view of, of, of Israel uh, over the years. Um, and um, I mentioned that uh, when you uh, uh, were retiring from Harvard, I actually uh, drove up uh, from, from Yale to be 
part of the event to, to pay tribute and, and actually drove, um, uh, um, was the chauffeur for uh, Aharon Barak, the, the great chief justice of Israel, former chief justice, the sort of John Marshall of Israel and his wife Elika. Um, and um, at an earlier moment, I had actually um, told Elika that I, I read this um, book by Alan Dershowitz on the case for Israel, and I found it was very powerful. It was um, very much about the Israeli Supreme Court. And, and I said, has, has Aron read it? And she looked at me and she said, why, yes, dear, it's dedicated to him, of course. Um, and I didn't know that because although I said I had read the book, that was a slight metaphor because I actually experienced the book on books on tape. And uh -huh. you read the book. It was Dershowitz reading Dershowitz, and it was great fun to experience that book with books on tape because you actually, uh, on occasion, would ad-lib and, and, and go off script a bit. It was really great, but you didn't read the dedication page of Memory Serves, so, so I didn't know that it had been dedicated to Ahro and our mutual friend. But I wanted to invite you to talk a little bit about that book and your um, views about Israel um, over the years. Well, I wrote that book because a student came to me and said, I don't feel comfortable defending Israel on campus because it will cause me all kinds of problems. He wasn't going to be opposed to Israel. He just didn't want to prioritize support for Israel because it would get him into uh, trouble uh, with friends, with colleagues, with faculty. And that's when I decided to write The Case for Israel and it's a polemical book. I've never included that in all the writings. Um, it's a polemical book, and um, I, I'm proud of it. Um, and I also wrote a case for peace and a case against Israel's enemies. So I've written a number of books relating to uh, Israel. Um, I'm, the book I'm working on now is number 46. <laughs> okay, I really did shortchange you. My apologies. No, no, it's okay. There's about thirty good ones. Uh, <laughs> so you're right. Well, has your has your thinking about Israel changed over the years? Well, yeah. I mean, look, the uh, public opinion is turning against Israel, certainly on the Democratic side of the aisle, and I think Israel has to respond and um, has to take into account why so many young Democrats no longer support Israel. So my views haven't changed on the morals, on the merits, but my views have changed on the tactics. And I think it's important to um, uh, make sure that Israel can defend itself both in the court of public opinion as well as in the battlefield. And, um, and the problem is that Israel always loses the war of public opinion because, you know, Hamas always fires rockets from behind civilians, and they then, Israel then responds, um, and inevitably there are going to be some deaths. But, you know, any death is too great. But people forget that um, Syria, in Syria, 4,000 Palestinians were killed. And in Jordan, many, many, many more during Black September 
So it's not so much that there is support for the Palestinians. There's no concern if the Palestinians are killed or injured by other Arabs. The only concern is when they are injured by by Jews, by Israelis, and um, and uh, that's um, that's um, I think an unfortunate aspect that I think the, um, the the idea that the Palestinians are lucky in some respects, luckier than the Kurds. The Kurds, nobody supports the Kurds because the Jews aren't uh, oppressing them. Nobody supports the Crimean Tatars. Nobody supports the um, people in the Ugars in China. Um, it's only Palestine. And the reason why it's only Palestine is because the alleged oppressors of Palestine are Jews. And that's why it becomes a cause celebre and a very, very powerful uh, attack on the nation state of the Jewish people. And, and two things I also just, in the course of the discussing Israel, I wanted you to, to talk yep. about specifically were the, um, in your view, the role of the Israeli Supreme Court um, in trying to protect um, civil liberties and affirm basic decency in um, a, a very, very dangerous part of the world. Um, uh, and that's where Aaron Barak comes in and your thoughts on that. And I also wanted you to tell our audience just a little bit about one of your most controversial ideas, um, which isn't unique to Israel, but maybe uh, has been shaped in part by thinking about the, the existential threat faced by um, Israelis, the terrorist threat, and otherwise, uh, in, in other respects. Um, your um, proposal for torture warrants. Yeah, but you know, let me be very clear. I'm not in favor of torture. I'm in favor of torture warrants. I'm not in favor of the death penalty, but I want to make sure that if the death penalty is imposed, it's done with due process and with uh, the ability to uh, have all sides of the issue presented. So I'm not in favor of torture. I'm against torture, but I believe that torture will be used, has been used, whenever there's a ticking bomb scenario. And so I propose that if you're going to use torture, which I don't approve of, but if you're going to use it, it's better to have it as a torture warrant um, approved by the judiciary um, and approved by um, the executive and the legislature. All three branches of government would have to uh, approve it. Um, it's very difficult. I don't want to do anything that suggests that um, I support torture, that I favor torture. But I'm a pragmatist, and if there's going to be torture, I want to make sure that it's done in the least intrusive way, minimally um, the same as the death penalty. I, for years, have argued against the death penalty, but I surely want, even though I'm opposed to the death penalty, I want due process. I want fairness. I want um, um very strong presumptions against the death penalty. So um, that's an analogy that, that I make. It's not a completely um, a completely um, coherent analogy, but it, it makes the general point that you can support um, a tactic without supporting the underlying um, um, torture. 
And that's it's, it's been very hard to get people to understand that. Well, I think part of the problem there might be in terms of getting people to go along with it is that uh, people may think of law as not being purely procedural, but also having a moral component to it. Um, and that if, uh, I mean, you've stated your moral opinion, which is that you're opposed to it, but but your solution is a procedural one. Yeah. Um, and and it, it it doesn't really address the question of whether just by providing legal procedures, you're also stamping a moral imprimatur to it because that which is legal has a certain moral approval to it. I agree with that. I agree with that. And that's why it's a very difficult balance uh, to strike. But I would say the same thing about capital punishment. I'm unalterably opposed to the death penalty. I would never want to do anything that supports the death penalty. But I have argued for years that before the death penalty is imposed, there has to be due process, there has to be racial uh, equality, there has to be a range of other protections, and that too is uh, procedural. But I agree with you that when you have a procedural um, tactic that um, is in the context of torture, it can be perceived as supporting torture. I agree with that. Now, Alan, um, early in life, um, you clerked on the U.S. Supreme Court um, after graduating from Yale Law School and before uh, commencing your career as a professor at the Harvard Law School. Um, but you also, um, in this book, The Case for Israel, talk a lot about the Israeli Supreme Court. So I just was hoping you could share with our audience just a little bit about your thoughts about these, these two courts in particular. Look, I think the Israel Supreme Court has been the most important court in the Western world. Um, I think no country faced with threats faced by Israel, external threats, Iran, internal threats, terrorism, rockets, rocket tunnels, um, no country has ever had a higher standard of human rights, more concern for the rights of civilians, more concern for the rule of law, and, um, but it's not perfect. And so, you know, if you want to be fair and, and look at what um, is actually being done, I think you'll see that the Supreme Court has done an incredible job of targeted killings, um, uh, you know, uh, even torture. They did, um, uh, did have a, a, an opinion uh, in which um, it was implied that maybe you could have uh, torture in a ticking bomb uh, case, but uh, the court never really um, said that. They just Im implied it. So, um, you know, it's, Israel Supreme Court has done a remarkable job in keeping Israel within the rule of law, and uh, Aaron Barak uh, is the most important person in Israel. Uh, certainly when he was the chief justice, he was the most important person, more important than the prime minister, uh, because he was the conscience of the country. And since you mentioned um, the prime minister and you mentioned your complex relationship to Trump, what's your relationship to Bibi Netanyahu? I've known Bibi since the early 1970s. Um, we were together on a TV show called The Advocates, um, and um, I got to know him. He was in his mid-20s. I was in my early 30s, and we've remained close friends. I don't support 
all of his policies. I'm more of a liberal and, you know, would like to see a two-state solution. Um, but I'm a personal friend of Bibi Netanyahu. And whenever I go to Israel, um, Bibi and Sarah invite me and my family to their house for dinner. And um, I don't think I've ever been to Israel in the last 15 years where I haven't had dinner with Bibi Netanyahu. So um, that's uh, one of the pleasures of knowing somebody for so many, so many years. And how often do you go to Israel? Um, at least once a year. Um, not this year, obviously, because of the um, uh, COVID, but um, uh, I think I will go maybe after the summer. But um, I, I, I've gone about um, 50, 60, 70 times. So, um, and um, I always enjoy going there, and I always enjoy having a meal with Aaron Barak and, um, and Ellicott. And talking about you, Akil. <laughs> well, thanks. What is the uh, when you what is the most special place for you in Israel? When you when you think about going, is there a place you make sure you go every time that you visit? That's a good a good question. Um, I, I try to go to uh, Jerusalem, to the um, um, Jewish quarter of Jerusalem, to the Hebrew University. Um, Jerusalem is the heart and soul of Israel, so I always uh, go to Jerusalem, but I also go to Tel Aviv because they have better food. <laughs> I heard, you know, sort of uh, from third parties that, oh, you know, he's, he's a Trumper, he's on Fox News, he's, uh, you know, this and that. Um, and I think that uh, one of the great things that's come out of this podcast is a sense that actually Alan Dershowitz is still with us. Um, that he's uh, he's not really any different <laughs> than he was before. He's still taking tough stands on tough issues, um, and he's willing to talk to anybody, including us. So I I really appreciate your your coming on today. Well, I appreciate that, and appreciate giving me an opportunity to explain um, my role in the Trump impeachment. It was not a political role; it was a constitutional and legal role. And I'm proud of the role I played. I think I made a strong argument against impeachment based on the two criteria that the House came up with, uh, uh, power, um, obstruction, you know, not not crimes. I know, Akil, you and I disagree a little bit about that. Um, and, um, but I, I, and I think there are reasonable arguments on both sides. We began, Alan, uh, you and me, our, our relationship, respectfully engaging each other's positions. They weren't the same, but we, we gave each other um, uh, the benefit of the doubt and tried to um, uh, uh, respond to the best version of um, uh, the other argument. And, and, and we remain friends because we keep doing that. And I think it's so important that you have this podcast because it's the response to censorship by the media, having more platforms like this. Thank you very much, Alan Dershowitz. Mm-hmm.